today on EdgeFX. For example, in the case of a very obvious case of coal and petroleum, mm -hmm. we can exploit the stored energy uh, created by thousands, tens of thousands, millions, maybe even billions of generations of microorganisms or of uh, decayed plant matter that then we can use all at once in a great orgiac <laughs> burst. Geographer Elizabeth Hennessy speaks with Gregory Cushman, author of the book Guano and the Opening of the Pacific World, a Global Ecological History. They discuss the global rise in extractive processes and the ramifications of mining the lithosphere for fossil fuels and other resources on human populations. By taking a humanist perspective on the lithosphere, their conversation sheds new light on the history of the Anthropocene. Welcome, Greg. It's great to be here, and we appreciate taking the time to chat with EdgeFX today. I wanted to, to talk with you mostly about this new project that you're working on in the history of the Anthropocene and focuses on the lithosphere. And so I think that the lithosphere is a good place to start. And so I'm going to ask first if you could tell us a little bit about how you got interested in that and also why the lithosphere, and maybe remind our listeners who haven't heard that term since they were perhaps in grade school or college what that term means. I'm a, a professor at the University of Kansas, and I don't only teach history courses. I also teach in the environmental studies program and teach a, an interdisciplinary co-taught course on the fundamentals of, of environmental science. And so I actually am the lithosphere lecturer for this group. <laughs> and to, uh, to put on my lecture voice, the lithosphere is, is, the, is an Earth system like the atmosphere, like the hydrosphere, like the cryosphere or ice realm, like the biosphere, mm -hmm. that consists of the Earth's rocky crust, so the outer mineral shell of the planet, and also the upper plastic, warm, heat-filled mantle that immediately underlies that. That provides the structure of the surface of the earth, but also through the interaction of the rocky crust and heat, uh, the geophysical forces that drive continental drift, for example, that drive earthquakes, volcanoes, that move minerals around through the, through the crust, redepositing them in different places. So what does it mean to study the lithosphere from a humanist perspective? Well, that's actually something that's rarely been done by historians or humanists, to focus on what was once called the mineral kingdom, to focus on human relationships with, with rocks. And I feel that in terms of why I got interested in this, that the Anthropocene concept focused on the human epoch of geological history almost compels us to try to think about the place of humans in relationship to this realm or this relationship to this lithosphere. Uh, so that's, that's a key inspiration for this. In terms of how I got interested in the lithosphere through my own work, um, my first book was about bird shit <laughs> or bird excrement. <laughs> in which I started on the coast of Peru 
um, exploring not only the excrement itself, but where it came from, the birds. How did the birds fit in the story of a commodity that transformed not only Peruvian history as a high-value export, but also transformed the way in which modern agriculture goes about its business? How modern agriculture became an input-intensive activity in which we extract energy and minerals and other things from distant environments and then put them on the field. Guano is, in a way, even though it's a biological product, becomes part of the lithosphere because it's the leftover excrement that accumulates over time. And it also is something that was extracted. Anytime we mine something, these things are never replaced on anything resembling a human time scale. In fact, even on geological time scales, they'll only be created in some other place mm -hmm. on the earth. Diamonds don't grow back. Uh, <laughs> gold doesn't grow back. Guano can grow back, uh, but uh, it's weird. I, I became really interested in the substances, the substance of the stuff, and the way in which moving a nutrient or a chemical from one place in the world to another can enable completely different activities or can ramp up or energize those activities in this place. For example, growing wheat, raising mm -hmm. cattle, growing sugar beets, uh, growing sugar cane, things like that, uh, which we take for granted now. Going to the store and buying a box or bag full of miracle Grow fertilizer, 15% nitrogen, 15% phosphate, 15% potassium, is something that it's, it's cheap, available even uh, to relatively uh, poor people in different parts of the world. How did that get started? Locating piled up resources, quite literally piled mm -hmm. up in the case of bird shit, was the starting place for a different relationship to the earth itself. So the move from guano and nitrates and phosphates to other things in the lithosphere was a relatively uh, straightforward path from those perspectives. Great. And so let's wrap that then back with this concept of the Anthropocene and the kinds of of scalar changes. So the Guano book really talk about the kind of takeoff, to use a modernist term, of guano production in the international realm from the mid-19th century. Tell me, I guess, a little bit about how you understand the periodization of the Anthropocene and when this term, when this epoch started. Right. So there is a debate ongoing right now about when the human epoch of geological history starts or started. Mm -hmm. And to talk a little bit about what the Anthropocene concept even means, the basic idea here is that human activities, maybe all humanity, maybe a small subset of humanity, but whatever those activities are, that they have grown in scale and grown in impact on the environment, on our systems to such an extent that our activities have fundamentally altered the functioning of the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, etc., that are causing some things we are familiar with, things like climate change, global warming, but also things maybe we're less familiar with, the massive nutrification of fresh water and saltwater environments by nitrogen and phosphate, as an example, or the acidification of the ocean by the absorption of carbon dioxide. The Anthropocene is interested in when 
and to what extent human activities have influenced environmental systems. One thing that's been absent, uh, relatively absent would be a better way of saying this, relatively absent from this debate are issues of who is responsible, even more so how this came about. What are the Mm -hmm. underlying causes and processes that enabled or even drove this scale up of human activities? And uh, I think the debate is in part defined by having different people having different perspectives on what these underlying causes and who is responsible might be. So the Anthropocene Working Group, which is a, a group mostly of scientists, also a couple of historians working on that group, set up by the International Commission on Stratigraphy, has suggested they have considered a range of dates for possible starting moments for the Anthropocene, going back all the way to the evolution of what they call behaviorally modern humans 50,000 years ago, to the start of agriculture 12,000 years ago, the conquest of the New World, periods of ecological imperialism, the beginnings of capitalism, the Industrial Revolution. And they have decided uh, last summer in August of 2016, as you know, to locate the moment of the beginning of the Anthropocene in the 1950s, the mid-20th century. What do you see as at stake in these debates about periodization and how it's the role of historians in thinking about this? Because all of a sudden this thing that historians are really interested in, this concept of periodization, has been at the forefront of defining just what this Anthropocene moment is. Well, one place to start is to point out that in contrast to global change scientists, historians deal on an everyday basis with the problems that go into periodizing something. We're acutely aware of the arbitrariness of periodizing something and how our interests in driving a particular interpretation of the past shape what Mm -hmm. or determine even how we divide up the past into different periods of time. I think a number of participants in the Anthropocene debate, particularly those who are stratigraphers or active geologists, have this presupposition that they will be able to find a clear, empirical, fact-based periodization of Earth's history in which it's everyone will be able to come to a consensus that that is the way things are. And the thing that messes that up for me is the fact that, well, we have human activities in the midst of this. This is not, even if the other periodizations, one could do that, let's assume that, that, that this is a viable approach. Adding a humans to the middle of this equation muddies that tremendously. As with regard to the debate over periodization, I think it's also interesting why participants are so obsessed by the when of this. And we haven't spent a lot of time, spent nearly enough time, I think, in stepping back and asking, what is the Anthropocene? What are its most important features? Where did those activities that created those environmental changes, where did, when did they start? When, uh, who's responsible? What processes led to this event? In short, what were the causes mm-hmm. of this? We're, the Anthropocene debate, as is initially formulated, has, has been obsessed with consequences and not so much with where this all came from. So I think historians have a vital role to play in this because this is one of the 
of the things that we're trained to be able to tease out is is the connection between cause and consequence and what that means for the way we periodize things. Could you tell us a little bit more then about your research on the lithosphere and what you're finding about when, if we look at the causes of extractivism in particular, when, when did all of this start? What kind of periodization is your work pointing toward? One of the things that is fascinating about the Anthropocene concept and the Anthropocene debate is how open it is now that scholars in the environmental humanities, artists, poets, uh, cultural critics, a broad swath of people have grabbed this concept as helping us think about human nature relationships in a new way. But part of that openness is also the chaos in terms of Mm -hmm. how to get our minds around this uh, seemingly short, concise (laughs) summary word for all of this. And then I I simply took as a a starting point for this is that one way to approach the Anthropocene is to take seriously the observation that humans are actors in processes of geological change. Humans are making a mark on geological strata. Humans have entered the world of the geologist. Let's think about human history from the perspective of of the stuff that geologists study from the perspective of the rocks, of minerals. And not only that, all of the things that we use these inorganic substances for in order to produce energy, to create materials, to build infrastructure, and on and on and on, all of the different things that derive from the lithosphere could be used for. And this was a bit of an epiphany for me because suddenly I had a simplifying assumption to say, Okay, I'm not going to obsess about human biosphere relations. In fact, this is something that environmental historians have written whole libraries of books about. I'm not going to obsess about human hydrosphere, human water relations. Again, this is something that was much Mm -hmm. studied. Hardly anybody's looked at human rock relations. So it was a not only a natural way, and I'm using that word intentionally, a natural way of of attacking the Anthropocene concept or getting your mind around it. That's a better way of saying it. Getting my mind around it. It's also was a way of simplifying the factors that I was going to consider and trying Mm -hmm. to interpret what it means to live in a human-created epoch. And this simplifying assumption also provided the opportunity to think in an analytical way about causes processes and consequences. And one of the things I realized relatively quickly, particularly as I began to quantify some of the things that we've produced from the lithosphere and how they're used, is that, and here now I'll make the central argument of my project, a central finding mm-hmm. in, in some ways, because it's not something I thought about at the beginning. It's something that came about through thinking in a lithospheric way, is that the reason we have entered into a new geological epoch. The reason Earth systems are now in a no-analog state in which human activities are a fundamental contribution to those changes is because historically, and this is historically in relatively recent time, human society, particularly industrial civilization, has adopted a fundamentally new relationship with the lithosphere. Not altogether different, but different in 
scale and also diversity from the previous ways that the different human societies, going back to the so-called Stone Age, have interacted with rocks and minerals. In the industrial era, we've scaled up tremendously by orders upon orders of magnitude the amount of stuff that we mine out of, that we extract from the earth, and created a whole entire economies. In fact, I would even say a global economy premised on extractivism. And from one point, another point of view, rather than exploiting the year-to-year or decade-to-decade productivity of other biological organisms, of people who eat those biological organisms and raise those biological organisms, who cut down trees, who live within the biosphere or live with the water that flows down in rain or, or in streams or into the ocean. Instead of exploiting the now, extractivism focused on the stuff we mine from the lithosphere enables us to exploit similar sort of activities, but accumulated over vast swaths of geological time. For example, in the case of a very obvious case of coal and petroleum, Mm -hmm. we can exploit the stored energy uh, created by thousands, tens of thousands, millions, maybe even billions of generations of microorganisms or of uh, decayed plant matter that then we can use all at once in a great orgiac <laughs> burst. The lithosphere, and also it uh, goes deep, mm-hmm. has enabled industrial societies, industrial civilization to s- continually scale up geometrically, exponentially, how much it takes out of the earth, using energy and substances to build things, to move things, and also to fill the atmosphere and the oceans with waste products from all these things. That's actually the thing that's uh, driving driving climate change, which got, has gotten so many people interested in this topic in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk then a little bit about the, the term Anthropocene as well. So as you know, there's so much work in the environmental humanities now about kind of investigating this term and really interrogating what it means, particularly the the anthropocentrism of it. And so in response to that, there have been various proposals for other possible names for this new geological epoch, including, um, for example, Jason Moore's proposal about calling it the Capitalocene or Anna Seng and Donna Haraway's idea of the Plantationocene. Uh, also Haraway's Dulucene. And all of these are pointing us to pay attention to different sets of of kinds of relationships between people and the world in which we inhabit, whether that be our political economics and natural resource use, whether that be the racialized politics of, of land ownership and forced labor, or whether that is about the kind of tentacular ways that we as humans are interconnected with other species in the world. So I'm curious about how the lithospheric perspective and the, the focus on, on the Earth's crust, what kinds of relationships are you really interested in thinking about and how does that shift the, the kind of politics of what's at stake in the Anthropocene? Well, one thing to point out front is that the words we use and the concepts surrounding those words are very important because they shape our entire vision of what something like the Anthropocene could mean. Who's involved? What regions of the world are involved? What scales we 
choose to study when figuring out how the Anthropocene came into being. And uh, some of these critics like, like Jason Moore, Donna, Donna Haraway, proposing these other terms have zeroed in on issues that have been excluded oftentimes from the Anthropocene discourse. I, I think that's a very important contribution. And I've learned a tremendous amount from it. However, one thing about the words we use is also the practicality that they play in our everyday language. And there's a reason that in our everyday lives and also in the jargon that we use within our individual disciplines, why we grab particular words and run with them because they enable us to communicate as a group. And the Anthropocene is a concept that is being used now by so many people in many different ways that the alternatives don't have, and I don't think ever would have, the traction to really play the useful role that a word like the Anthropocene can play in helping us think about things. For example, to think lithospherically. One other thing that is also keep important to keep in mind is that these, these other alternative terms have strengths and weaknesses just like the original concept did. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I don't want to go through uh, what, I, what I think of the strengths and weaknesses. Let's focus on the strengths and weaknesses of the Anthropocene concept. One of, its, one of its critiques, which was deserved, at least initially in the way the discourse developed, was this focus on the tremendous power of thought among scientists and tremendous power to alter Earth systems through technology, through economic and social systems that could, in a way, seem to celebrate what human mm-hmm. societies accomplish. Maybe there's actually a role for that, although I, in uh, seeing the tremendous environmental problems that this is creating, such as uh, the ongoing sixth extinction, I am not so sanguine about this. And I certainly am not sanguine about the prospect of us seizing our historical role as geoengineers and actually taking a step to control our systems. The Anthropocene concept actually impacts me in a very different way. To an extent, it, I think, compels us to have humility as a society, particularly as an industrial society, and maybe even as a species that has transformed the earth in so many different ways over tens of thousands, even millions of years of our existence. The fact that so many of the changes that we have made were not overt intentions and are causing what we see as potentially causing existential crises, for example, for a huge number of people that live next to the ocean that will mm-hmm. potentially be washed away uh, or forced to, forced to get up and walk or run as the ocean rises, as, as the polar ice caps melt, as the water expands because of warming and, and things like this. So the Anthropocene concept can help us realize the diversity of ways that we've really made a mess of things. Another thing is, it, particularly when we focus on the extractivism that our relationship with the lithosphere has been built on begins to bring to the fore the issues issues of sustainability. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually thinking of titling the concluding chapter of the book project I'm working on. Uh, sustainability is a fraud and always has been, <laughs> or something to that to, to that effect. Because especially as I've begun to to try to quantify some of 
these uh, activities such as fossil fuel use, nitrogen and phosphate production for fertilizer and explosives, plantation crops, uh, could, could go on and on. And then they're, uh, how they're tied in with environmental impacts that leave a mark in the geological record. I've been impressed by the long-term scale-up, exponential growth of these activities and their impacts. And when you stop and look at this, and this make especially when we think of something like gold or silver, uh, that we mine, have a boom, but then when it's all mined up, we have the bust. It's not coming back. We, we have to go search someplace else for it. These relationships, these extractive relationships with the, with the lithosphere are not sustainable by definition. And supporting exponential growth forever is something that just we've known uh, for a long time. Certainly Malthus helped us in getting our minds around this are something that has to have an end somewhere and somehow. And one of my interesting findings of tremendous surprise to me is that in the midst of the so-called great acceleration following World War II, getting started in the 1950s and supposedly going to the present, that if we look closely and do a rate of change analysis discover that things are already slowing down. The rates of growth of our use of energy, of our extraction and use of metals, going on and on the list, the rate at which they're increasing, keep in mind they're gigantic and are still growing at a tremendous rate, but the rate at which they're growing has actually begun to slow down. Maybe there's some good news actually in this, although I am not overly sanguine about this because what I sometimes refer to as the great deceleration, this slowing down dating from the 1970s, also tends to correspond with the exact moment in which economic and social inequality have skyrocketed in, within the world, particularly within industrial and post-industrial societies. Things aren't growing as fast, and that's having a direct impact on people's everyday lives and on conflicts between the masses and the few, between those who have and those who have less and those who don't have much at all. What do you think can explain the, the decrease in this rate of, rate of increase? One is that this is to keep in context the timing and the place at which lithospheric extraction, industrial production and then the consumption of all those products has taken place. It started small, and uh, Britain certainly being one of the key starting points, and then grew, moving from one region to another region, gradually becoming bigger geographically. When we enter the 20th century, the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China um, become major forces driving this industrial growth, even though they're not capitalist societies. Uh, one reason why the capital scene concept I find a little bit problematic. Then uh, spreading to regions of the so-called underdeveloped world or third world in the late 20th century. There's a process of the globalization of, not that industry has grown up everywhere, it certainly hasn't, but the activities that support industry have, without a doubt, expanded to cover huge swath of the Earth's surfaces. Not just the terrestrial realm, getting at the rocks and minerals, but in the oceans too. Mm -hmm. uh, in my iguana project, one of the findings was how important islands were. Those with bird colonies, those also with ancient accumulations of microbial poop 
forming phosphate deposits. How important islands, as remote from civilization as you could get actually on the Earth's surface, how important those were for driving these activities. And we've, we're reaching the ends of the Earth, quite literally. Don Worcester, in a recent book, made a point of how important connecting the so-called old world to the new world and the Pacific world was in multiplying, for at least a certain old worlders, <laughs> the, the amount of land, the amount of resources, the mm -hmm. amount of stuff that could be extracted from the new world, in part because of the in very intentional and unintentional destruction of the populations who were making use of these things before these worlds became connected. That raises an important point for me in that I see more so than many analysts of this intentionality in some of these activities, particularly in the way that people have gotten treated as we've developed extractive ways of living. What group of people is more exploited than miners? What worse way of life is there than going down into the bowels of the earth to chip out with a hammer and chisel, silver, gold, other things that, that, that can be used? And one important part of my project is actually tracing the roots of extractivism to the colonizing efforts in the New World, for example, on the island of Hispaniola and the island of Puerto Rico, that the male population in particular was obliterated, not only because of disease, subsistence crisis, and things like this, but of sheer overwork and abuse to pan for gold. Moving from one island to the next island, then moving over to Mexico, then moving down to the Andes, scaling up as we went and obliterating entire societies of people in the process. Well, I'm glad you, you bring up this point about the kind of lived experience of extractivism and lived, thus the lived experience of the Anthropocene, because I think in so much of the, of the discourse, particularly outside of the environmental humanities, we, it really loses focus on that because the scale at which the global change scientists are speaking is precisely about the globe, its planetary limits, it's, it's all of these global changes, and they, they make the argument that that's really necessary to see the scale and the scope of the, the changes that are going on in the world. But to me, what I think is so fascinating about the, this project and your Guano book as well is that you can tell a global story, but have it also be really grounded in the specifics of people's lived experiences in the colonial politics. And so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how that comes out in this lithospheric Project. Yeah, or, or even on a specific island, a little speck of land out in the middle of a vast ocean. This is a case in which I'm a bit puzzled that global historians have so often been content to simply take the, the bird's eye view or the satellite's eye view nowadays of, of what's going on in, uh, in planetary history. The view from nowhere. Yeah, the view from said. nowhere. We have vast archives focused on the lives of individuals, small communities, regions, countries. In my experience, and I have to admit, it's a lot of work <laughs> to tease out these individual or place-based histories and then make the connection to the bigger processes. But I certainly have had success at making these connections. And one of it's simply going and making an effort to say, how is this little island out in the middle of the Pacific, Niue Island, an important supply base for workers to mine guano, to mine phosphate, to 
plant coconut trees, to cut down coconut trees and use them to make uh, coconut oil and soap, thing, on and on like this. What role did those, those workers, not only as an undifferentiated group of indigenous peoples, but going through the records and seeing instances in which, and this is one of the amazing discoveries, the historians in World War II found a diary of a Niuean guana worker written in this sort of Tahitian patois. I wasn't able to read very much of it, but it actually had little pieces in English that I could read that described this guy's struggles living with a dozen other people from various islands throughout the Pacific, breaking their backs every day, digging up bird excrement, dealing with rotten food, dealing with the fact that they have no idea if a ship is ever going to come back and fulfill its promise to take them home again and to give them a cash payment uh, based on all the work that they did. In a way, this gets back to, I think, my background, my training. I was trained as a Latin American historian, and Latin American history prides itself in its attention to the uh, everyday life, to um, the history from below, Mm -hmm. as it's often referred to this. I was trained by social historians uh, and figured out environmental history kind of (laughs) on the way from, uh, from geographers, actually, to some extent. That dedication to researching and figuring out how to write histories of below was simply a an obsession I brought to the project. And I went looking for it. And as often happens, when we go looking for something, we, we can find it. <laughs> it's a matter of going to the effort of looking. But also one other thing regarding methodology is how one makes those connections. Mm-hmm. And this isn't something that I theorized ahead of time. It's something that I kind of fell into just because it seemed to make, it seemed to work. Let's just put it that way. In order to make connections was to follow things, to follow individual people, be they a scientist who's obsessed with marine birds or a uh, Niuean native who, who works on the Guano Islands as they move place to place. And also not doing what many of us do um, in order to make our lives simpler, not stopping when this person this organism, this substance, this climate phenomena like the El Nino and La Nina phenomena crosses the borders that shape an archive or a library collection, that shape the grant that you can get to go do research in Peru. A lot of frustrations there, I can tell you, and, and all this uh, indefatigability. I never use that word, but uh, that's a, something one needs to bring <laughs> to basically be obsessed with with making those connections across scales. It's possible. Yeah, and difficult too. I know from from teaching the Guano book to my grad students that they're it's an amazing scope because you go and starting in Peru and these islands and then go across the Pacific and also all of these connections back into industrializing Europe. And so the question my grad students had was always, they love the, the conceptualization of the project, but the, the idea is, how do you know when to stop? And this strikes me as a problem for, potentially a problem perhaps for the Lithosphere book, because it is by definition global and everywhere. And so how do you, how do you pick the stories that have the most relevance to the argument that you're making? There's absolutely no doubt. This is a difficult problem for the investigator. One is to have the willingness to follow branches to their very end or 
to an end far beyond where you actually need, but then to step back and say, oh, I don't need to use, include all of that research in this project. I can just leave it in the drawer. You don't have to include everything you know in, in a project. And also when you write the project, the willingness to hit the delete button and to weed the garden, <laughs> to, use, to use that metaphor, to um, get rid of the overgrowth. Um, another challenge, though, is, is not only where to stop. It's hard to know, actually, actually those things, but also how one goes about narrating this entanglement. It's a mm-hmm. word that a lot of uh, historians are using now to, as a, an, an aesthetic that they want to bring into their histories. Clear, straightforward, relatively simple, elegant narratives of here's why this happened have tremendous value for us still. And I tried to search some of those out in the process of both of these projects. But also part of writing entangled histories, writing global histories that are grounded in local locales and regions is that we need to have the patience to wander through the weeds to some extent because it helps us realize that the simple stories, or I should say the the elegant stories that we tell about the past are artificialities and, very importantly, have excluded entire swaths of human existence and earthly existence from consideration out of fear that they would complicate things too much. I'm against complication for complication's sake, and nothing I grates on me more. It's like, we need to complicate this notion uh, <laughs> when I'm uh, having conversations with people or, or especially graduate, uh, graduate classes. Complication for complication state is not a value that I bring to this. It's complication for inclusion's sake and also to make connections to peoples and places and things and whole realms of the planet like the lithosphere that we've simply overlooked and not made connections to the things we hold important in our existence. This point about complication strikes me as particularly relevant for thinking about the role of the environmental humanities more broadly in these debates about the Anthropocene. As we said earlier, there are some historians on this Anthropocene working group, but I think my sense of it is that our proclivity for complication is part of the reason that we're not easily incorporated in some of these debates or these scientific models. So I, I'm curious to to hear you speak a little bit maybe broadly about the role of history and how does that we talk to scientists or how do it is that we are entering into these debates if not only for our own our own crowds for other historians, for example. Yeah, or for uh, out of the sheer desire to uh, colonize uh, a discourse or, <laughs> uh-huh. or an idea, uh, which is certainly a temptation and, and, and there's no doubt a, a compelling force in all this. I guess it's also based on my background. I didn't start my career, start my education with the goal of becoming a historian, much less an environmental historian. I, uh, my parents were trying to drive me to become a scientist. Hmm. And I, I had family members who were, were who were scientists um, that I very much idealized. Although interestingly, uh, learned that the old school naturalist kind of person that they were was a, was an endangered and almost extinct <laughs> species in in the, the world of universities today. 
I was very disappointed to learn that the holistic perspectives that my great uncle and that my grandpa brought to their engagement with the natural world as naturalists mm-hmm. weren't actually what environmental science was about anymore. They went the way of natural history and didn't disappear from the world, but certainly disappeared into nooks and crannies. Mm-hmm. In, uh, marginalized in fields. Yeah, they became, they became marginalized. And so I was frustrated back when I was studying to become an ecologist, a field ecologist, I thought. Well, one thing is, is uh, this will guys show my age a little bit because ecologists have discovered the human. I'm not that old, but uh, humans weren't central to the stories that the researchers I studied with and the um, biology and ecology teachers that I, that I work with, they, they weren't central. They were sort of a, a complication, so often a, an unwanted mm-hmm. complication of what they're studying. And I began to realize that including humans in these stores is actually the, the really interesting thing to me. Not, not just to me, to a lot of, a lot of people who are interested in, in the envir- environmental problems. And so one day, one of my teachers, uh, who actually was an historian, because I'd taken a course in the history of evolutionary thought, actually from a University of Wisconsin PhD, PhD graduate. So uh, shout out to Rennie Shefflin. He handed me this article by Donald Worcester, who I never dreamed would have become a colleague (laughs) of mine, much less a close friend at the University of Kansas. Uh, Transformations of the Earth, an agroecological perspective on history. The ecological part of that was wow to me because it connected directly with the things that I had been aspiring to look at and connected it to the agro which for Worcester is a very broad kind mm-hmm. of concept. It includes so many different parts of human society. It, this is something that just it, it intrigued me. And I began to be aware that one could study the environment, but from a humanities perspective. And went on a long search to try to find people to study with, make a career as a Latin Americanist in all this. Moving forward to what that early formation meant for me. Moving across disciplines in that early part of my formation provided me basic training and conceptual equipment to continue to engage with scientific research, scientific ideas, scientific data in my work that I've been able to take advantage of ever ever since. So coming from outside the humanities into the humanities Mm – I had already had in my toolbox, so to speak, um, things that uh, that many a conventional history major would would not have. I've valued all the way along what I could learn from the sciences to help me understand what humans are doing. And one of the attractions to the Anthropocene concept to me is it's scientists, global change scientists, following in some ways the exact path that I was wanting mm-hmm. to make humans more central, not really central, but more central to their investigations and struggling to, uh, to do so. And the Anthropocene concept I see is something that can bring us together. I want to say one more thing about this. It's, I've had the for- good fortune of being at a university that for some reason, I think Don Worcester, his uh, personality and all this played an important role in which investigators have talked and collaborated across disciplinary lines long before I ever arrived at the University of Kansas. It's also a place that encouraged and gave you credit for going to that extra work of doing so. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that doing interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary work requires a lot more work of many different kinds. 
also in the process learning, and this is similar to me learning Spanish, learning to read Portuguese, that there's a, the skills that one has as crossing between cultures, the two cultures ideas rather trite and Scientists and the humanities. Yeah, scientists and the human sciences and the humanities and a bit false. But it it still has a tangible reality or truth to it in that one has to speak different languages when when one talks across disciplines. And this is a skill that needs to be cultivated of uh, somebody operating in boundary zones to take mm -hmm. a to take a concept from uh, um, uh, postcolonial theory, someone who can act to act as a translator to realize that you're not really translating anything ever in full, but that contacts can be made across these and these can be productive. There are a lot of work in a selfish sense can enable you to look at something in a, a way you would never have dreamed of doing from a discipline specific perspective. So I really value the opportunity to uh, co-teach classes with scientists to uh, I've worked on some research projects with them and also when a scientific paper comes up in a concept search I don't sit there and make the assumption I won't be able to understand it I get out my machete and um, <laughs> cut through through the vines cut through the kudzu <laughs> yeah I mean, I think that's a really important skill set and certainly also what we're trying to do here in Che and EdgeFX is to speak across mm -hmm. these boundaries. And and I think that, as you point out, the Anthropocene is a really productive term in that sense. I'm going to go back, though, to something that you said about the, the title for your last chapter is that sustainability was perhaps always a fraud. And I'm curious to kind of think through what, what the end message of your, your new book might be in terms of where where does this leave us in the Anthropocene? What do we do with the sense of the if the sense of sustainability and and ever increasing growth is something that we need to come to terms with? How do we how do we do that? I think fundamentally we need to begin imagining and begin imagining fast and begin building fast a world not premised on exponential growth. We're going to be forced to do that if we don't do it intentionally by the circumstances. And one of the interesting things is, is that it's the, and then back to my guano project, it's our shit, the waste products that are produced by our activities, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, methane coming out of cow and human butts, etc., that are forcing us to reckon with the end of things. I'm not an apocalyptic person necessarily in this, one thing I've been impressed with in studying indigenous peoples, which is an important part of my, uh, my training and my, and my research, particularly indigenous peoples in the Pacific and Peru, is how tough and resilient societies like the Rapa Nui and Easter Island have been under incredible challenges that virtually pushed them off the cliff of, of into cultural extinction, but are able to keep it going and realize what was going on and themselves shape the circumstances in order not only to continue, but to make new lives for themselves. In both climate change discourse and Anthropocene discourse, one often hears about, oh, the poor Indians, oh, the poor Pacific mm -hmm. Islanders, Pacific Islanders who are going to lose their whole island are no doubt in a pickle. 
But um, looking at histories of migration, of movement, of how they got to these places in the, in the first place, how they rebounded from tremendous challenges, I'm not worried about indigenous peoples, people who are rooted in place, who know how to grow their own food, at least to some extent, fish, keep themselves alive. I'm worried about people like me who are dependent on reading and writing in uh, things that uh, only indirectly keep me alive. And, and in the tragedy that's beset Puerto Rico recently, where I have uh, close personal connections, witnessing the almost instantaneous collapse of the basic infrastructures that we depend on for electricity, for light, for moving around, for, in the case of a um, family member of, of my fiance, someone who died because medical services weren't available in the aftermath of this. Industrial civilization is the thing that's fragile, I think. And we'll see. But I think realizing the fragility of things we've built from rocks, that's a a paradox. Mm -hmm. Realizing the fragility of those things is a first step towards thinking beyond what we've been living for the past couple hundred years in industrial civilization and imagining a new future. It does strike me that Puerto Rico is a fantastic, if tragic example of the fragility of this modern world that we live in. Thank you. That seems like such an important lesson coming out of the work, and I'm very much looking forward to reading the book, Greg. Thanks very much. I've been thrilled to come here and visit and uh, speak with so many of you. Elizabeth Hennessy, geographer and professor of history and environmental studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, speaking with Gregory Cushman, professor of international environmental history at the University of Kansas. They discuss his new book project, The Anthropocene, A History of the Earth Under Human Domination. He's also the author of Guano and the Opening of the Pacific World, A Global Ecological History. Available now from Cambridge University Press. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment, and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Brian Hamilton, Stefa Velenitsky, Adam Berman, and me, Sarah Thomas, with a special thanks to Kyle Johnson. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. We're back soon with episodes featuring anthropologist Marisol de la Cadena, historian Richard White, and sociologist Jason Moore. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. That really helps us connect to new listeners. You can also follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXNAG. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.